Well, uh, this, this title's negative. Uh, put off the old self. And if uh, you think that's too negative, next week comes the positive part where Tate's going to preach about putting on the new self. But for this week, uh, our task, our text, is about putting off. Now, each and every single one of us here, I'm sure, has been faced with cancer either personally or through a loved one. And if you know what it's like to have that diagnosis of cancer, that dreaded diagnosis, then you know you have one of two basic options. Option one, if you have cancer, you might choose to do nothing about it. You'll move on with your life as if there was no real problem, but the truth of the matter is this, you're dying and you will grow to be weaker and weaker, sicker and sicker until this cancer fills your body and your body fails and you die. That's option one. But option two is this. You fight the cancer. You know it's going to be painful and you know it's going to be difficult due to the chemo and radiation. You will probably lose your hair and you will feel sick and be miserable feeling in all kinds of ways. And this is because you are putting a part of your body to death. You are killing the cancer that dwells in your body, but... If you are able to kill the cancer through your battle with it, then you will live. Two options. You either kill the cancer that is in you or the cancer will kill you. Well, this morning we all have a very similar diagnosis except for it is far, far more deadly than cancer. And its spread is farther reaching than the single person who has received the diagnosis for cancer. We all have this diagnosis, and it is this. We have sinned. And we have two options. And Romans 8.13 makes those options clear to us. Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, that is the sinful desires, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Christian, understand, killing sin is not an option for you or for me. And this is what our text in Colossians deals with this morning. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 introduces it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That is what Paul earlier referred to as the, the things of the flesh. Put to death what is earthly in you, and if you're confused as to what that is, he goes on. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. John Owen famously said regarding our text, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the language, if, if the language of killing sin is too strong for your taste, well, perhaps you just don't rightly see the severity of sin and the seriousness of the duty that is set before us this morning. And so my sermon has just one point. It's unusual for me because I always have three points. But I do have three points because I have one point in my sermon with two subpoints under it. So it's Three points, but really there's just one main point in our sermon this morning, and that is this. Christian, you must kill your 
sin. If you get nothing else from this sermon this morning, I hope you understand clearly there is a command here for us in this text. In fact, it's not just one command, but it's stated three different ways. Christian, you must kill your sin. Listen to how Paul said it. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. There's the command. And then he says it again in a different way in Colossians 3, 8. But now you must put them all away. Them referring to these earthly sins. And then a third time in Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another. So we have three commands in our text, all dealing with the very same subject, killing remaining sin that is inside of us. Now, I want to clarify something before we move on too quickly. These three commands are not given to us in order for us to try to earn a right standing with God. Or to put it another way, killing sin is not a means of justification. We are justified by faith alone not according to works. And so to this, John Calvin says, wherever the knowledge of justification by faith is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. That was John Calvin. And so we need to understand these commands And the main point of my sermon isn't to try to earn your right standing with God, but rather these three commands are given to us so that we would be sanctified. That is, so that we would be growing in our holiness, that we would be made more and more like Christ. So justification is not our our aim in keeping these commands. We seek to grow in Christ's likeness, and these commands are given to us so that we would be holy. We need to understand, though justification and sanctification are very different and distinct from one another, they are not foreign from one another. That is to say, if you have been justified, then you will also be sanctified. Again, let me quote Calvin on this point. He said it this way, It is therefore faith alone which justifies... And yet, the faith which justifies is not alone. And so we can never overestimate the preciousness of this doctrine of justification by faith alone. But we can overstate the purpose of this doctrine of justification by faith when we use it to justify ongoing sin. And so our scripture makes it very clear in these three commands that though we have been justified, that is to say our sin is is wiped clear, we are not done with the duty of mortifying, that is killing our indwelling sin. So let us look at our text. I want to make four brief and quick observations regarding our text this morning. Observation number one, and I fear this is stating the obvious but it's worth making clear nonetheless. Paul's words here in our text this morning are for New Testament believers. That is, these are for Christians who are following Jesus. 
And this should be clear from any number of angles. We could just look at the broader letter that's been written to the church here in Colossae. But it's also clear from one little word in our text as well. Look at Colossians 3.5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That word, therefore, is calling back to what Paul has previously said in the verses prior. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 said this. This is Tate last week, he preached on it. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So understand, these Christians have died. The old man is dead and the new man has been risen with Christ. And because of this, when Christ comes again, the Christians who have been justified by faith will also be glorified with Christ. So understand what the word therefore is therefore in our text. It is there to remind us that he is writing to these justified Christians who will be glorified, which leads me to observation number two. Though he's writing to New Testament believers, Paul's words draw from the Old Testament law. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthy in you. And here's the things that we're to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Five commands there. Five works of the flesh that we are to put to death. And then in the following list, there's another five. Colossians 3, 8 through 9. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then the third command do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Paul's not coming up with this out of nowhere. It sounds an awful lot like the law that Moses gave to Israel. Here are the latter five commandments from the Decalogue. Exodus 20. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And furthermore, Paul, who actually identifies covetousness as one of the things that we are to, to not do, that we are to kill, that we are to put off, he says covetousness is idolatry. And so when we see that our coveting, our, our desire for things that are not ours that we are idolizing things, what we also see is that we're not just breaking the latter five commandments, but we're also breaking the first part of the Ten Commandments as well. So to this end, Paul Washer provides some helpful observation. He says this, quote, There are two ways in which the law can be used in the wrong way. The one is to supplant justification by faith, that is through works of the law. That's the first way to misuse it. But the other way is more common today. One of the ways the law is misused is it isn't used at all. See, the Apostle Paul, he seems to have no problem with giving us words that come from the law. But it's not that he just quotes the law. We know Paul does that. He does that all the time. But we should know how does Paul use the law, which leads me to observation number three. Observation number three, Paul commands Christians to put off what is not lawful. Emphasis on him commanding us to do this. We are the ones who are told to do this work. Yes, he's talking to Christians. 
Nevertheless, their position with Christ does not prevent Paul from giving clear commands which he expects them to obey. Listen to how he says it in in verse 8 again. But now, you must put them all away. Very clear, I, I, I think, as to what that means. You must put them all away. And if there's any confusion as to what it is that we're to put away, he makes it all the more clear when he lists it out. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, I, I love reading commentaries. I really do. I think more than any other kinds of literature that I've ever read, I've read commentaries. I've, I've read tons of it over the years. They help me to understand difficult parts of Scripture, and there are many difficult parts of Scripture to understand, but this just isn't one of them. This is very clear, and we hardly need any more explanation to understand what he's telling us to put away. When I tell my son to put away his toys, he knows what I mean. And what I don't mean when I tell him to put away his toys, I don't mean to say, hey, go get your mom to put away your toys. And I don't mean for him to go get his sister and to tell her to put away his toys. But when I say, put away your toys, son, he understands that I'm telling him to do something. And so it is. Now, Christian, you must put these all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And if there is any remaining confusion as to how we're to put these sins away, he gives us another way of putting it. Do not lie to one another. I want us to see clearly, we have a duty here in this text. We are given three clear commands, each of them similar to the other in one way, shape, or another. We are to put to death our sin. We are to put away our sin. We are to not lie to one another. We are given these commands, though we are Christians, and so we ought to obey them. And this leads me to observation number four. It's the most encouraging of all these observations I've made so far. Paul is commanding Christians to kill their sin because Christians still have remaining sin. Now that's discouraging in one sense, but it's good to know that you can still be a Christian even though you still have remaining sin. You see, some of us might be concerned after having heard all of these commands that perhaps because we've sinned this last week, we might not be Christians. Paul told us not to lie, so we shouldn't even lie about it. Let's be honest. Some of us have sinned even this morning on our way to church. Perhaps even during this very sermon, you have sinned because you have had evil desires, unclean thoughts, because you're angry with someone, because you have slandered someone, because you have lied to someone. Can such a person be a Christian? I see here in this text a resounding yes, because Paul would not command perfect Christians to kill their sins. In fact, we should understand this. There is no such thing as a sinless Christian, not in this life. Romans 7 makes this abundantly clear. If there were ever a sinless Christian, surely it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his own indwelling sin that remains within him that he wishes to be rid of, to be freed from. And so if you're here this morning and you're going to claim to be a, a sinless Christian, 
then you are either lying to yourself or to the other people around you, or perhaps it is that you are so occupied with the speck in your brother's eye that you do not see the plank that is in your own eye. But John tells us that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So Christian, take heart. Are you a sinner? Then you have a Savior who has grace for you. You have a Savior who not only forgives your sin, but here in our text we see there's a Savior who has given us power to kill sin. So don't lose heart over the sins of this past week. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know the difference between an unbeliever and a believer who loves Jesus? I'll tell you, it is not because, it is not this, it is not that the unbeliever sins and the believer has been freed from sin once and for all. They have been freed, but there's still an ongoing battle going on. So understand, both the the sinner and the believer, that is the unrepentant believer, sinner, excuse me, and the the sinner who is repenting, and they both are going to sin. But here's the difference. The difference is this, the unbeliever sins and they love their sin. They delight in their sin. And so they continue to walk in their sin. We need to understand further. You might even profess to follow Jesus, but understand, a tree is not known by simply their profession. A tree is known by their fruit. But the Christian, he sins too. So what's the difference between the Christian who sins and the unbeliever who also sins? Here's the difference. Though the Christian also sins, when he sins, he mourns his sin because he hates his sin. And so he repents of his sin and turns to Christ. And then he asks Christ for the spirit so that he might have the power to kill his sin. Let me illustrate it in this way. I'm going to pick on my kids. My kids are almost two and almost four. And there's a big difference between my daughter, Lydia, who's two, and my son, Peter, who's almost four. Both of them, when they eat their food, couldn't be further apart. When my daughter eats yogurt, she doesn't think it's for eating. She thinks it's for wearing. And so when she eats yogurt, perhaps maybe one quarter of it makes it into her mouth, but the remaining three quarters of that yogurt is everywhere else. It's on her, it's on the table, it's on the chair, it's on the floor. It's such a messy affair that after she eats yogurt, she's due for a bath. But here's the worst part of it all. When she eats yogurt, or better yet, when she wears her yogurt, she doesn't even seem to care. But that's not how Peter eats his yogurt. When he eats his yogurt... Not that he doesn't spill it on himself. He still spills and he still makes a mess. But when he does, he hates it. He often won't even take another bite until he is clean. He'll even go so far as to demand new clothes altogether before he can continue on with eating his yogurt. So what's the difference between my kids? They both spill their yogurt but the difference is this. One would live in the yogurt if her mother did not clean her while the other wants to be clean from the yogurt, whether or not dad has the the energy to do it. 
So it is of the unbeliever and the Christian. We're both going to sin. But the difference is not that we sin, one sins and the other does not sin. But the difference is this. We're going to respond to our sin differently. And so let us ask ourselves this question. Do you love your sin? I hope not. I hope you hate your sin. And I hope this hatred for your sin causes you to repent of it and then to go further and kill it. So understand, Paul, he's not commanding us to kill sin because he wants to take away our fun and to make our life miserable. He's telling us to kill the sin which we hate because the sin which we are to kill is seeking to kill us. And so let me quote from John Owen once again. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You're being dead with Christ virtually. You're being quickened with him. That is to say, you being a Christian, this will not excuse you from this work. And so Christian, make it your aim to kill indwelling sin. But now if I was to stop here and say that killing sin was simply the work of the Christian, well, then I will have overstated my point. If I stopped by saying that killing sin was merely the work of the believer, well, then the one who is succeeding in this effort would have every reason to boast. And the one who is failing would despair. So while killing sin is the work of the Christian, we must also see that killing sin is also the work of God. And the two following points that come after this, I hope will help ground this point clearly in our mind. These are, these are motivations. These are the reasons for why we are to kill sin. First, you must kill your sinful desires because you have been united with Christ. Now I see in our text, there's not, there's not a explicit mention of our union right away with Christ, but through these texts, it is implied all over the place. We've already talked about the therefore. The reason it's there is to call back and remind you that you've been justified and that you will be glorified. And so let's consider, though, the first list of these sins that we are to put to death. And I want to see this. The first list of sins are distinct from the second set of sins and that the first set of sins are all about desires. They're about cravings. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthy in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are all cravings. These are all desires. These are all the longings that sinners are inclined towards. So it's worth seeing that here in these sins, especially passions, evil desires, and covetousness, these aren't just simply the things that we do with our hands. But it starts in the heart and in the mind. And so the, we need to see this. We cannot simply kill sin in the heart by changing our external behavior. Why do we commit these sins? Why is it that we commit sexual impurity and impurity and passions, evil desires, covetousness? Why, why do we do these things? It's because we're enticed by them. We're drawn to them. 
and we crave forbidden fruit. James puts it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so to this end, one Puritan writes, Satan presents the bait and he hides the hook. The bait is what lures us and draws us into partaking of these sins. We are driven because it looks so good to the eyes. And so does your sin seem sweet to you? If you are enticed by the bait of Satan, then consider the hook. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So for those who do not want to put away these sweet sins, for those who do not see mortification as the thing on which they want to do more than indulge in sin, we need to understand the severity of the wrath of God. And so I want us to consider this hook, which is the horror of hell. Now, I do not like horror. In fact, I do not watch horror movies. Last week, we took the youth to a corn maze, and every single time we go, we pass a different corn maze, which is the haunted corn maze. And it seems without fail, every year, one of the youth asks, hey, can we go to that one? To which I refuse. I do not like horror. And so it is, we, sh- we probably don't like to consider the horrors of hell either. But this is a reality that we cannot ignore. You might consider what you most dread in this world. One of the things that I dread is going to the dentist. And yet what is infinitely worse than going to the dentist is the horror that will be experienced by those who the Lord cast out of his presence and into hell. Hell is the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels and those who live in their sin and according to their sin will be cast into hell with them. Hell is the fiery furnace where there is unceasing weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jude tells us that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding sins which likewise indulged in the sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire. You can see the similarities there to the first set of sins that are driven by desire. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It is no wonder that Jesus said, if your hand and your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to enter with two hands or two feet or, be, or to be thrown into the f- eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you would enter life with one eye than two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so hopefully we See why Paul is so serious, using such striking language with why we are to to violently kill our sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthy in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But Paul, he doesn't stop there with the hordes of hell. He continues with these sweet words of relief. Listen to him in verse 7. In these, that is those sinful desires, you too once walked 
when you were living in them. Consider in these verses what Christ has done. The, the words here in Colossians 3, 7 have parallels to Ephesians 2. And so when I hear these words, what I hear is not that you did this, but Christ has done it in you. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Do you see that phrase, in which you once walked? Once walked? Direct parallel to what we see in Colossians 3, 7. You were dead in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is in, at work in the sons of disobedience. And here's another similar phrase. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You can see the similarity to the passions, the sins of desire, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so when you hear Colossians 3, 7, when he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, this is a clear allusion to the grace that God has lavished upon us. So let's understand what's happening here. We were once sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience crave to disobey because we are, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God has made us new. He has changed us from a, a child of wrath, and now we are children of God. And so now, you no longer desire sin like you once did, but instead you say with Christ, who is your brother, my food is to do, is to do the will of him who sent me. This is what a son does. A son longs to do what pleases their father. So when Christ saved us, our desires changed. Such that we would say with Paul that we long to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is what grace does. Yes, it, it pardons sin, but it also gives us the power to kill sin. This is why Paul, he talks like a madman at times. First Corinthians 15, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Who's the one working? Paul. And then he goes, but though it was not I, the grace of God that is with me. And so it is of all of us, the same is true when we have received the Spirit of God. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's the will that's been changed by God that is our, our affections and our desires. And not only that, but he has given us the, the strength to work for his good pleasure. So understand, the new life gives us power and gives us new desires as a result of the Spirit of God who dwells in us. 
This is why when Paul picks up the same exact conversation, the same exact reality of killing sin in Romans 8, 13, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Understand, it's not just you doing this, though it is you doing this, but we could say with Paul, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The Spirit of God is the one working for us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how is the battle won against sin, Christian? Understand this. It is not mere willpower. Not your own willpower, at least. Plenty of things can be accomplished by just setting your mind to it. You might stick to a diet. You might wake up early in the morning. You might even go to work out of sheer willpower. But killing sin cannot be done with willpower alone because sin runs far deeper than on the surface. Our wills themselves need to be changed. And so the battle is won not through effort alone, but through the power of God who is able to change both the will and who is able to make us work. This is why this, the sin of desire here, this first list, we need to see it is won by having an all-new desire for God. These desires are killed by having an appetite for what is good and right and pleasing. And furthermore, it is won by enjoying and delighting in Christ himself. That's why last week Tate preached on setting our minds on things above. When we set our minds on things above, we are changed. And so Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. Do you want to kill sin? Do you want to stop longing for those desires that God abhors? Then walk by the Spirit. Set your mind on things that are above. You must kill your sinful desires because you have been united with Christ. I might even change that and say, you are able to kill your sinful desires because you have been united with Christ. And here's the third point or the second sub point underneath of this. You must kill your sinful disdain because all kinds of Christians are united with Christ. The first part of this was about desire, that first set of sins. The latter set of sins that we see here is about disdain and hatred and anger against our fellow man. Listen to Colossians 3.8. Listen to the list, and hopefully you'll see the disdain in all of them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. The lists of sins here are not about the, the, the just affections that are bent away from God, but here it's that our affections towards our fellow man are broken. So like the first list, we should also recognize that these sins don't simply start with the external actions. You might not murder your brother, but if you hate him, you have still sinned. And this hate does not come from our hands, but it comes from our heart. And this anger that burns inside leads to wrath and malice and slander. So Paul, he tells us how to put them off. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to one another. And this is 
This is how we're to put these sins off. Seeing that you have been put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Notice here that the, the putting off that Paul's talking about is in the past tense. It was first in the, the, the present tense happening earlier. And now in verse 9, he says, seeing that you have put off. It's already happened. You have put off the old self with his practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed. The old man has died already. He has already been resurrected. And you have been united with Christ. And here's the reason. And here's the purpose for that. So that we would be renewed and the knowledge after the image of his creator. He's making us like himself. John Piper says to this point, Christ conquers sin by the new birth, and then he commands us to kill what he has conquered. Paul makes that same point clear when he instructs the Corinthians regarding their own sin that's happening in their own congregation. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He wants you to be a new lump, but he goes, you already are unleavened. You are already this new lump, and here's the reason for it. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so because Christ has made us new, we can continue to be renewed into the image of Christ by setting our minds on him. Let us consider further how many of us were ever worthy of grace when we received Christ. Did any of us come to him in our own merit? No, not even close. Remember that Christ forgave you when you were dead in your sins. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He lavished his mercy and his grace on us. He forgave us even when we did not deserve it. Christian, how do you kill the disdain that you have for your fellow man? By remembering that when Christ should have had anger and wrath poured out on you, he instead poured it out on his son. So do you feel disdain towards your fellow Christian? Are you angry? Are you marked by wrath and malice and obscene talk and slander? If so, remember the mercy that God showed you when you were a sinner. And it's at this point, Paul, Paul he just, he bursts forth with a list. And it's a wonderful list. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Not the lists that he's been going on with before, not the, the dreadful lists of sins, but here it's a list of all kinds of people. And what makes this list so wonderful is these are people who were once divided and disdained towards one another. But now... They are being united in Christ. Consider the list, the Greeks and the Jews, 
These are people of different ethnic backgrounds. And not even that, but even they worshipped different gods altogether. Circumcised and uncircumcised. People who were once under the Mosaic law. And then perhaps the Gentile Colossians who have been put under this law by these false teachers. He's saying, no, 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 even both circumcised and uncircumcised, they are brought together because of Christ. I'm going to skip the next two and go to slave and free. Once again, you can see just the, the different positions in society and how they would have opposed one another and looked down on, upon one another and disdained one another. And then in the middle of this, we see two other names, two other groups of people, barbarians and Scythians. These people would have been the least cultured people in all the world. These were the people who were barbaric, ruthless, cruel, murdering people. We know that from the, the term barbarian, but then the Scythian. If a barbarian was bad, then understand a Scythian was worse. These people were the worst of sinners, right? No. Not exactly. There's a worse person even yet than the Scythian. And Paul, he, he takes this title for himself. 1 Timothy 15 and 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you understand that, Christian? If you feel like you are the chief of sinners, understand, you are not the chief of sinners. Paul owns that title. And only Paul is deserving of that title. And this is the reason for it. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, I kind of wonder sometimes if I would have known Paul but I have loved him, especially in his days before he was a Christian. I would, have, I would have disdained him. I would have hated him. And yet Christ, when he saw Paul, he put his love upon him so that we would have the, the perfect picture of Christ's love for sinners. Understand this, Christian. If, if Christ could love Paul, or any other sinner for that matter, why can't you? Put to death, therefore, what is earthy in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and, put, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In conclusion, what do we do with this? Well, to the unbeliever, there's a warning in this text for you. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. If you are an unbeliever, I want you to think long and hard about the horrors of hell. The wages of sin is death. But to the unbeliever, there is also an open invitation. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That means Christ, he dwells in his people even when they were the worst of sinners. So to the unbeliever, what is required for your salvation? Must you kill your sin, clean up your act, and be good? No. If you wish to be saved, simply look to Christ and believe in him. And to the rest of us, Our call here is simple. Christ has died to set us free from sin. So let us be killing sin in the strength that he supplies. This is our duty and this is our delight. So may God be glorified in it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have lavished your grace upon us that even when we were dead in our sins, unworthy to, to breathe, let alone be considered a child of God, you poured out your grace. You gave us your spirit. You have made us new. Lord, we thank you and give you all praise and glory. Would you continue to pour out your spirit on those who do not believe? Would you save them? And for those of us who have already believed, would you continue to sanctify us? We ask in Christ's name, amen.